BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode 229. It's our June 2023 research review with Dr. Austin Baraki. This week, we review recently published studies surrounding exercise, nutrition, and health. Specifically, does collagen protein supplementation help tendons, ligaments, and muscles? Do women's strength athletes actually have higher rates of incontinence than the general population? and new clinical trial data on an anti-obesity medication. All that and more on this week's edition of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy. And honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether again, I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, They also have golf stuff. If you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double, you know, in my day-to-day life? It's really really good stuff it looks clean and uh you know look good feel good play well that's uh that's my motto so go to viore uh all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint 100 percent. you can go to their website viore.com backslash barbell and get 20 percent off your first order
All right, we're back here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. It's episode 229, June 2023 research review. We've got the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Just doing my usual hospital thing at the moment. And then I guess you you surprised me with this uh, with this podcast today. <laughs> yeah, we've had to flip the script. Okay, so I know I didn't allude to this last week, but my thought was I wanted to do this like testosterone series in honor of the testosterone trials, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah. I thought we would do PEDs, like the use of, of supra-physiological doses of testosterone this week and then next week or the week following, we do something on like lifestyle interventions and how those can uh, adjust testosterone levels, package it all together, have like a downloadable testosterone resource. So when people are like, testosterone, what do? And they're like, yo, here you go for you formatted a PDF. But uh, the PED thing is, is uh, it's a little stickier than I want it to want it to be. And before we started recording, I told you, I was like, we could do a literally an entire episode on just incidents, like how many people are using PEDs or have used PEDs, not only in sport, but recreationally and di- like delve into the weeds. So the interesting, I found a ton of interesting stuff, particularly in uh, Denmark. They have like a, a national state funded, like PED identification system within all the health clubs. Apparently 80% of the health clubs or so in that country in Denmark are part of the system where effectively they'll randomly, not randomly, they'll test people that they suspect to be using PEDs. And if you test positive, even if you're, you're not an athlete, you're just lifted at the gym, they'll kick you out of the gym for a couple of years. But anyway, they have this massive like data set. It is wild. Yeah. They have fertility data. They've got all sorts of like uh, anonymized blood panel result. It's just pretty interesting just to see like, yo, what are the Danes doing over there? <laughs> so yeah, we'll include that. And um, I don't know if, if you also knew this. Uh, do you remember that study by Basin uh, from 96? Yes. He was, yeah, we use that in our, our seminar quite often. He was also lead author on the new ACSM position stand on use of anabolic androgenic steroids in sport. It came out in 2021. Super, super interesting. Uh, but up until 1987, the American College of Sports Medicine's stand position on use of anabolic androgenic steroids in sport was that, yeah, they don't do much. There's no performance increase, eh. which is, uh, I, I don't know if you remember this. I'm really getting on a tangent here. You world, there was like one question about anabolic steroid use. And like within the answer section, it was like, we don't know that they actually increase performance. <laughs> like, I, I remember you sending me a picture of that when we were in med school. And you're like, what is this shit? <laughs> for, yeah. For anybody who works at UWorld who may be a tad bit litigious, I did not send Austin a picture of this copyrighted <laughs> protected material. <laughs> but yeah, so interesting that it took until 2021 for them to update that that position. Anyway. That's going to likely be next week. Uh, I just, I'm running out of time. I've got a birthday coming up this weekend. I'm trying not to like spread myself too thin, but uh, yeah, for all of you tuning in, they're waiting for more testosterone stuff. That's going to be next week and likely the week following. But this week we're going to do a 2023 June research review. We've got some interesting stuff on collagen protein and connective tissue synthesis rates. So like does collagen get incorporated into tendons, ligaments, stuff like that. We talk about SUI, stress urinary incontinence and its prevalence in strength sports. And we talk about uh, some new data on oral anti-obesity medications, particularly oral semaglutide, which is commonly referred to uh, known as rebelsis. Although I'm, I wonder what the new name is going to be because it's a higher dose. We'll get into all of that. Uh, but first we got some new stuff. 
new stuff's out available for consumption at the website. So we got the brand new bodybuilding two template. I, when I was going through the uh, bodybuilding one template, I was like, I think I just did this last year. It was three years ago. It was 2020. <laughs> what, what's happened in my life? <laughs> in, yeah. in any case, uh, bodybuilding one was uh, three templates that were six weeks long each. And this one includes four separate blocks. They're all eight weeks long. That's some interesting stuff with respect to training volume, some partial range of motion type stuff. Got a much expanded ebook that's basically like all thoughts on hypertrophy. It's uh, 63 pages long. Uh, pretty good value. So that's available at the website. Uh, we also restock supplements. So Perry RX, which is our uh, pre-workout Perry workout supplement has been reformulated. That's available also at the website. So we reformulated based on emerging evidence um, and just really cleaned up, I think, the dosage, the uh, contents. Um, not to say it was bad before. It's just as data emerges, you just you just got to update it. It's not, that is not a way to make a ton of money in the supplement space. Let me tell you, when you reformulate stuff, your margin, you, just, you can't buy enough raw materials to like really, you know, have this huge profit margin. And then the manufacturer is like, why are you doing this? Like, why are you, why are you changing the game? And you're like, I, cause ethically I just had, we just have to. So, and then you got to buy all new labels. It's a whole thing. So I can understand why some companies are like resistant to updating their stuff. Uh, but you know, us being a smaller company, we get to do it as new data emerges. Also, uh, the vanilla way is back in stock. Um, and you know, for anyone listening to this, they're like, why are you guys in the supplement space? You guys are doctors. Like, what, what are you doing? The whole point is people were asking us like, what supplement should we take? And it's like trying to recommend a supplement that we know for sure is been batch tested by a third party organization to make sure that it has exactly what's on the label in the supplement has no contaminants and has evidence-based ingredients. Like we were going on a limb. We we're like, uh, here's some stuff that I like and I think is okay, but it's not like you have a mass spec in your, in your house to like really evaluate it. So that's, uh, that's why we're in the game and you know, it, it, it's it's a passion project, so to speak. So that's available on the website. We also restocked the street tees. The denim color sold out the, the day of, and it's back in stock. So if you're waiting to get one of the blue colored uh, street tees, it's available on the website right now. New article on the science of weightlifting belts, that's on the website. And then I also published the uh, artificial sweetener, non-sugar sweetener newsletter piece. So if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, Go on the website, poke around for five or 10 seconds. Pop-up's going to come up, put your email in, and uh, you'll get all that information. I'll also post a link directly to the newsletter on non-sugar sweeteners in the description below. So if you ha weren't already subscribed and you want to read this, you can. Last but not least, we have live in-person seminars coming up uh, next week. The Pain and Rehab team will be in Bozeman, Montana, which I spoke with the legend, Paul Horn. Now, he doesn't live in Bozeman, but he does live in Boise. And I assume that they're this, it's like the same climate. And he goes, it's beautiful up here right now. You just, you have to come. So I, I don't know. I'm just saying, if you're curious about living at your Yellowstone fantasies, go to both. <laughs> <laughs> Check it out. Uh, so that's coming up next week for our pain and rehab seminar. They'll also be in Los Angeles in September of this year at Monarch. We were there last November. Great facility. Uh, we will be at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California in October. That's our, our two-day uh, health and performance seminar. And it will also be in Sydney, Australia in January. All of that is linked uh, in the description below. So after the podcast, you can go poke around and uh, come join us at a seminar. And yeah, if you, if you were listening about uh, two and a half minutes ago, my birthday's coming up. Uh, Austin, I assume you got me something awesome 
for my birthday this Saturday. Uh, I I did get you an Alico barbell at one point, so I'm just waiting <laughs> for that. Several years, yeah. <laughs> to co- I'm just <laughs> to building come up, back to me, so it'll be epic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, that's what I thought when I got you the bar. I was like, I'm probably good for like a decade. I think yes. And then for sure. at some point, I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember texting you about it. I was like, Hey, uh, are you going to be home soon? Because I think there's something that's on your doorstep that you may or may not want to bring inside shortly. Were you, when you got it, what was your, did you know it was a barbell right away? I don't think so. No. I mean, I think it was like when I saw it visually, I did not. But once I picked up the box and I was like, I know this weight more or less (laughs) and this, these dimensions that I (laughs) kind of had a feeling, but (laughs) So you, so if you've never ordered a barbell before, it does, it comes in this long round tube. So yeah, they're pretty, you know, identifiable, so to speak. And, and the weirdest thing is the packing is so crazy that you have to like, you debate what tool you're supposed to use. Like with the rogue stuff, the there's metal end caps that are like pounded into the end of the extremely thick staples too, that hold it all in that you have to like get pliers to pull out manually and stuff. It's pretty intense. (laughs) Yeah. I've like, I've thought about using like a little, like a handsaw. I'm like, all right, I can just saw through the edge here and then like (laughs) take it off. A Lyco, as I recall, has, they screw in the end cap. So you could literally take a Phillips head screwdriver, unscrew the end. And then without having to hack the cardboard tube in half, you can just pull the barbell out. So my, my, my question, superior. they're just better. They're superior. Yeah. So my question is when you pulled the end cap off and you were like, the heck, a Lyco? <laughs> <laughs> what did you say to Lorraine? Do you recall? I mean, this was like 2017 or 18 or something. Yeah, man. This would have been back in when I was in residency, I think. I don't remember if Lorraine was even home, but yeah, I was obviously blown away and excited to take it out and try it. Having, having you know, touched and trained on those things before, but not like a fresh one that had never been trained on before. And so, I mean, I just used it like an hour ago. So it, yeah. uh, it is a top notch piece of equipment. <laughs> I, f- I feel like it's like, what was that movie? Was it platoon or was it whatever? It's like, there are many guns like this, but this is mine or whatever. It's like, there are many barbells like this, but this <laughs> right, is your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I've had Maya like bar for, I mean, it's over a decade now at this point. And it is, yeah, when people ask, what's your favorite barbell to lift with? I'm like, it's an Alico barbell. The problem is it's too expensive to actually recommend with a straight face to most people. Uh, But my thought is there are two effective categories of barbells. One is like, this is a premium product. You're going to spend, you know, a a pretty penny. I think the Alico bar when when you bought it was like $1,000. And I don't say that nonchalantly. That's a lot for a barbell. But then the Rogue Ohio Power Bar, the Kilo Edition, is like $300. And I feel like that for its money is worth, I mean, that's a great barbell. I have both of those bars and the 20 kilo rogue stainless steel Ohio power bar is uh, really fantastic. I agree. And and additionally, I mean, the stainless steel aspect of it makes it nicer if you live in a place where you can have humidity issues or otherwise, you know, things that can cause more accelerated oxidation and require more maintenance of a bare steel bar. Um, like where I lived before and now where I live, humidity is way less and it's not really as much of a concern, but where I lived before for the bare, couple bare steel bars that I had, I had to do a fair amount of maintenance with them. I had to keep the Alico bar in my actual house, not in my detached garage because of that and things like that. Now it's not really an issue here. So, yeah. And, uh, just to, to show how, how much Austin loves that barbell, the Alico one, <laughs> he brings it inside. The, the bar gets an inside spot just in exactly. case. I don't think this is for theft <laughs> purposes, but no, just like, no. you're like, I need to take care. Well, okay, let's let's get into this week's podcast again. This is episode 229. 
June Research Review uh, here in Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're going to start out with collagen protein. So the study is called Collagen Protein Ingestion During Recovery from Exercise Does Not Increase Muscle Connective Protein Synthesis Rates. And, you know, I am one for a good title, but I feel like they just gave away the thing right in the title. It's like, hey, look, even if you don't read the abstract, even if you don't read the paper, you know what this paper says. And it's like, there's no mystery here. Come on, guys. Um, So this got published in May of 2023 in the Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise Journal by Thorben et al. They're out of the Netherlands. And just to give people a little background here, collagen is a protein that's found in many foods like Uh, those derived from animal muscle, uh, animal connective tissue, egg white, spirulina. It's also available in supplemental form. It's not a particularly good protein source for building muscle because it lacks the essential amino acid tryptophan, which is one of the nine essential amino acids. Also, its digestibility is much lower than other protein sources such as meat, dairy products, eggs, whey, soy, pea protein, etc. You can process the collagen protein in a way that makes it more digestible, but it's still lacking tryptophan, which is one of, again, the nine essential amino acids. And so if you were thinking about a protein supplement for like muscle building, uh, purposes or just as a meal replacement thing, you would want to make sure that it has all of the essential amino acids. Uh, There are numerous types of collagen in the body. Type one is the most common and it's found in tissues like bone, ligaments, tendons, and skin. Tendons are composed of approximately 65 to 80% collagen protein. And there are other types of collagen that are found in organs, body tissues, et cetera, but type one is the most common. Changes in collagen have been associated with altered function of various tissues. For example, the loss or degeneration of collagen in the skin tends to reduce elasticity and promote the development of wrinkles. Uh, Also, people will look at various uh, um, collagen levels and collagen uh, structures within ligaments and tendons and ascribe all sorts of dysfunction or, or pain, in fact, although that is less well supported in the evidence. But given the ubiquity of collagen in the human body, it should come as no surprise that many claim supplemental collagen can improve the function of these collagen-containing tissues because of the high glycine and proline content in comparison to dairy protein. So effectively, glycine and protein are these two amino acids that are overrepresented in collagen protein compared to other protein sources. And the thought is that, well, look, if collagen itself in the body has a ton of glycine and proline and this collagen protein supplement also has a ton, a ton of glycine and proline, if I take this collagen supplement that may be more effective in stimulating muscle connective protein synthesis rates, reducing wrinkles, etc. Uh, so presumably this would all help improve tendon injuries, reduce pain, et cetera. And in this month's research review, we'll get the scoop on collagen protein. So in this study, here's what they did. They took 45 young trained men and women, and they assigned them to one of three groups. Group one, after they exercised, got 30 grams of whey protein mixed with water. Group two got 30 grams of collagen protein mixed with water. And group three got a placebo. It had no amino acids, no calories, no nothing. I, I wonder though how they flavored it. <laughs> so they didn't know. Uh, if, when I read the paper, there's no actually like, hey, did you know what group you were in? Because for one, whey protein ta- tends to taste much different than collagen protein. The texture is much different even when you mix it down. And then I'm thinking about the placebo. It's like, was it just water? Because yeah, then you it's would- gonna be, It's going to be tough to texture a, pl- a plain calorie-free um, 
beverage to mimic those other things. So I wouldn't be surprised, you know, like we've talked about in, in other study contexts, it, it is always interesting when studies do that kind of assessment for unblinding, do do the subjects somehow like figure it out or guess or whatever the case is. But it also depends on yeah. what are your outcome measures and are, you know, what are you measuring? And are those measures going to be susceptible to the person knowing? So like, I would not expect blood biomarker levels to be particularly susceptible to that. Whereas maybe like ratings of soreness or pain or something else like that may be more susceptible to, you know, unblinding and expectations and things like that. Yeah. I, then I thought like, well, maybe they used unflavored way, which is disgusting to mix with water. It's okay for like cooking or mixing with other stuff, but, but with water, dear God, and then <laughs> unflavored collagen protein, dear God times two. And then maybe, <laughs> but maybe then you can't tell, I don't know, but the, but even looking at it, Right. You're like, OK, this one's clear. This one's cloudy. This one's cloudy. I don't know. Yeah, I would like to see that just for my own like curiosity, but I'm not sure. Uh, so in any case, they had these 45 young uh, trained men and women do six sets of squats at 60 percent of their one RM. The first set, they did 15 reps, second set, 12 reps, third and fourth sets. They did 10 reps and the last set they did eight reps and then they consumed the beverage afterwards. I'm thinking when I read the protocol, I was like. 60% of squats is not particularly light. Uh, you know, if you did 60%, if you, if you're one RM on a given day, 600 pounds. So then you would do what, uh, 306, like, yeah, you could do that for 15. I could. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be a super pleasant experience, but I could do that. <laughs> I mean, if I did 15, 12, 10, 10, eight at that weight on a, on that kind of a day, I think that'd be a challenging workout. You'd have some doms. For yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first, the first set would be like RP seven or eight or something. And then yeah. just be, it would continue to be a seven or eight all the way through. Cause you're like, I'm tired, bro. There's a lot yeah. of reps. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so in any case, they, the weird thing is like, so right afterwards, they, after they squatted, uh, actually I think now that I think, think about it, the study protocol, they actually like put, uh, catheters, in veins on both on both arms to assess these blood amino acid levels i think they did it before they squatted and now i'm thinking like squatting with, <laughs> with a little large IV bore your... iv yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like i don't think that would be comfortable although okay would you rather would you rather have your your you know you've got two large bore ivs one in each arm or and you have to squat or you're trying to measure intra-abdominal pressure via a rectal <laughs> catheter like which one <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i would take the ivs and additionally since they're taking blood samples and not trying to infuse things in then it doesn't have to be large bore so yeah. i'll take a smaller a smaller iv lock in this yeah fair that's fair enough okay <laughs> uh they also took muscle biopsies of the vastus lateralis that's one of the quadriceps muscles um just to try to get a more accurate uh picture of what was going on with respect to muscle protein synthesis um and muscle connective tissue uh, synthesis. And they used these two blood markers to evaluate for bone and collagen uh, synthesis, turnover, absorption, et cetera. One of them is called pro-collagen type 1N propeptide, and the other one is cross-linked type 1 collagen telopeptide. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what those are. I mean, I know what the words are. I can read them. They're in the English language, and I know various segments of each word, but I do not know how valid those are to actually like assess for collagen synthesis turnover. So I'm assuming and I'm trusting the researchers here that those are valid measures of like collagen turnover and, and things of that nature. Uh, they also rated delayed onset muscle soreness called DOMS at 24 hours and 48 hours post squat protocol. And let me just tell you, I would be sore after this. 10 yeah. out of 10 would be sore. Yeah. Okay, so what happened? Uh, okay, so after the squats without any sort of 
beverage consumption, there was an increase in muscle protein synthesis and connective tissue synthesis rates. As far as I could tell, that's from the biopsy, that's from the blood marker turnover, et cetera. So just squats alone looks like it's jacking up muscle protein synthesis and muscle connective tissue synthesis. So that'd be stuff in the tendons, ligaments, et cetera. Muscle protein synthesis via biopsy after exercise, it was higher at baseline and it was even higher with whey compared to placebo. Importantly, there was no increase in muscle protein synthesis compared to placebo with a collagen protein consumption uh, supplement. Uh, With respect to muscle connective protein synthesis. There was no difference between groups compared to placebo and neither protein supplement really did anything on top of the squats themselves. And finally, with respect to delayed onset muscle soreness, no differences between groups. So that's a lot of words. Let's pack this into something that uh, you guys can take home. So first off, it looks like exercise in general is good (laughs) for connective tissue and muscle. We already knew that it was good for muscle as far as like stimulating hypertrophy, muscle turnover, things of that nature. Uh, This is the first study that I've really seen that had like demonstrable evidence of muscle connective tissue like synthesis from barbell training. Uh, Most of the other studies look at like isolation exercises, for example. So this was uh, pretty cool to see. So if you were really thinking on the structural sort of front, like what would happen, um, you know, if you exposed somebody who had various structural abnormalities in their soft tissue and you had them do exercise, it looks like, yeah, that stimulates some turnover, some remodeling, some, some changes there. So that's good. Uh, taking a whey protein supplement can take advantage of this increase in muscle protein synthesis. Uh, so it looks like whey protein, again, increased muscle protein synthesis relative to placebo. Um, although I will tell, I will say that this is likely equivalent to eating food. Like, I don't know that a whey protein supplement is going to give you heads and shoulders better results than eating an equivalent dose of protein from chicken, from beef, from egg, from vegetable sources, legumes, whatever. It's all probably about the same. The biggest benefit in this uh, instance that I can tell you from whey is going to be that it has less calories than all of those things for a given dose of protein and it's transportable. You don't need to heat it up or whatever. And so maybe those things would be beneficial. Um, in saying that collagen protein supplementation, not nearly as good. In fact, it did not increase muscle protein synthesis, uh, additionally at all. And that's likely due to its amino acid concentration, particularly the essential amino acids and potentially also its digestibility. So in fact, due to them taking consistent blood samples, or constant blood samples after the squat protocol, they saw that the essential amino acid availability in the blood after consuming the protein supplement was nine times higher in whey compared to collagen. Nine times higher. And again, some of that due, is due to how quickly whey enters the bloodstream and how much of these amino, essential amino acids it actually contains compared to uh, collagen. And so whether or not that leads to long-term differences in like muscle hypertrophy or whatever, I'm less convinced based on additional data. Uh, but I will tell you, if you're going to take a protein supplement, I think it should be one <laughs> that can actually increase muscle protein synthesis. Um, the other caveat here uh, is again, this big picture uh, thing that we, we come back to this all the time. What happens in short-term like acute muscle protein synthesis uh, compared to like long-term training outcomes. Eh, It's just not as clear. So for example, we know that people using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs after training, muscle protein synthesis levels are lower in the hour, two hours, five hours post-exercise. When you look at them over a 24-hour period and 48-hour period, no different. And so you're like, does this matter? And it doesn't look like it 
matters long term with respect to hypertrophy outcomes, but you know, something to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, with respect to connective tissue protein synthesis, uh, again, despite collagen's high proline and glycine content, which are also present in type one collagen that you'd see in ligaments, in tendons, et cetera, it did pretty much nothing during the entire uh, study period, which was five hours post-training. And so like, if you're taking collagen, a collagen protein supplement in order to like, I'm going to boost this connective tissue protein content and resorption and remodeling, et cetera, whatever. It doesn't look like collagen protein does that. To be fair, it doesn't look like whey protein does that either. Uh, looks like exercise pretty much trumps both of them. And so I don't know that I'd be taking a, a protein supplement period to be like, yo, let's, let's get my ligaments, some extra amino acids. I just don't think that's the rate limiting step. That's kind of what this says to me. So overall, my take on this is collagen is meh. It's like, it's way more expensive than whey. It's way more expensive than casein. Uh, it's way more expensive than pea protein, soy protein, et cetera. It's digestibility, like I said, is not that good. Uh, and it doesn't really uh, seem to have much of effect on muscle protein synthesis rates overall. So I'm kind of like, why would somebody take collagen protein for exercise related outcomes? And I, my answer to that is marketing. <laughs> Like, yeah, like, I you know, agree. if, if you believe it to work, like, okay, I guess, <laughs> but I don't think there's good evidence that it does. Yeah. I, to date, I've not seen anything that has convinced me that collagen, um, uh, protein supplementation is worth it in effectively any situation over, uh, alternatives that may have a more favorable kind of amino acid profile or may have other kind of favorable characteristics. I remember a couple of years back, we were kind of nerding out a little bit. There was this dude who was doing some research on collagen supplementation in the context of tendinopathy um, and, and making some, making some significant claims around efficacy there, which I to date remain unconvinced of, particularly in terms of superiority of collagen over other protein sources that also contain some of those amino acids. You know, from the marketing standpoint, this all of these claims around collagen, because I see it, you, you see it in any grocery store or like places that have these kind of supplements that where there's tons of claims being made. And, and I just have to laugh sometimes. It's like one of those things where it makes sense. It, it, it seems to make sense if you don't think about it. And it's, I'm trying to think of other areas of the uh, of the body or in the nutrition space that use similar logic. It's like somebody who has heart failure should probably be eating like hearts or somebody with kidney disease should be eating more kidneys or something like that. It's like most people, I think, I would like to think most people would hear that and say, no, that doesn't really make any sense. But then it's like, oh, connective tissues. So you need to have connective tissue protein. And that's going to like specifically know to make its way to your tendon and like fix that thing. It's like, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> no, we all, we all know that whatever organ system needs some extra support, you just eat that organ yeah. from another source. And that's yeah. how medicine works. That's how I feed all my patients with dementia, human brains. <laughs> you just brains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Screw the Kuru, the Kruzfeldt Jakob <laughs> disease, the yeah, prion disease, right. the risk. Yeah. Uh, but so that's probably like the most obvious example, but like a more nuanced example would be like, oh yeah, well, if you're vitamin D deficient, for example, supplementing with vitamin D is going to be helpful for the conditions that you have may have that are associated with vitamin D deficiency. And by and large, that's not true either. And so it's like, not only is this like, like replaces like, like that doesn't seem to make any sense. Again, we digest all of, we digest all of the proteins into its constituent amino acids and they don't, they're not smart amino acids. They're not like, oh, 
I got to go to this particular area. They're like, nope, they get fed, they get digested, chopped up, end up getting absorbed as, you know, uh, single peptides or polypeptides or whatever, or single amino acids. They go to the liver, the liver does some stuff to them. They enter the bloodstream otherwise and, you know, go off King. Uh, yeah. So not only are they not smart things. amino acids, exactly. totally, yeah. totally. So they're not like intelligent, but then on top of that, you're like, well, is the digestibility different? Is the availability different? You know, whatever. And then are there long-term outcomes associated with replacement? It's like, uh, in all cases for collagen protein, no. Um, We may do a skin-related episode, you know, although if I'm picking like a skin-related topic that's actually people should care about, it's probably gonna be related to like sunscreen and like, you know, dermatological exams, you know, overall, something like that, rather than like, does collagen protein reduce wrinkles? But, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll comment on that. But uh, I I can say with some level of confidence that taking collagen protein for like exercise related outcomes, pain related outcomes, things of that nature, it's probably not the move. Would you, you would agree with that? I would fully agree with that and basically don't recommend anybody take collagen protein for any reason. I'm, I'm happy to provide that strong of a <laughs> recommendation against at this point. <laughs> what, what are you going to do with that five kilo bag you have of collagen protein <laughs> sitting in the corner here? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right. So that's study number one. Again, and I've linked the uh, 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 articles in the description below. All right. Article number two, prevalence and normalization of stress urinary incontinence in female strength athletes. This was published uh, in the April 2023 uh, edition of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Mahoney was a lead author. Uh, the senior author, Dr. Olawinski, actually DM'd me this paper. They were, yeah, they were like, yo, I know you talk about SUI. We just did this. You may find this interesting. And I'm like, can't confirm. Do find this interesting. Uh, so let's give people a little background here. So Urinary incontinence is the involuntary leakage uh, of urine, which affects both men and women, although it's much, much more common in women than men and increases with age, um, also parity. So if they've had uh, children and then also maybe overrepresented in female athletes in general, there are four main types of urinary incontinence. One, and that's the one we're going to focus on is stress urinary incontinence. This tends to occur with increased intra-abdominal pressure. Uh, and this is the most common type in younger women. Uh, again, we'll focus on that today. For completeness, the other types include urgency, uh, urinary incontinence, so the urge to void or go to the bathroom immediately preceding uh, or accompanied by involuntary leakage. There's mixed, which is both types, and there's overflow urinary incontinence, which is basically due to incomplete bladder emptying. Um, so we'll just talk about stress urinary incontinence here. The big risk factors, like I said, include pregnancy. Um, so having multiple kids, uh, particularly kids, uh, babies that are larger uh, than than uh, normal size, pelvic surgery, uh, low back pain is also a risk factor for SUI, which again stands for stress urinary incontinence. Also urethral hypermobility. So the urethra itself, if it's moving around a bunch, that can be a risk factor for SUI and also an intrinsic sphincteric deficiency. So basically the intrinsic uh, sphincter of the bladder, if it's not functioning, leakage obviously would be uh, more common. As far as the rates, there's some baseline data here um, that'll kind of set the stage for this paper. The lifetime prevalence of stress urinary incontinence in all women is 10 to 39%. Uh, It tends to peak in the uh, sixth decade of life, which is age 50 to 54. Every time I say that, by the way, just as an aside, when I say sixth decade, people are like 60. I'm like, Okay, so the first decade of life (laughs) is zero to 10. That's how the math works there. Uh, It also appears that there are higher rates 
of stress urinary incontinence among active women compared to the general population. So for example, in a survey of women who attended the gym, 25% of gym goers reported having SUI while they exercised compared to uh, 14% in the insufficiently active population. So a little bit higher rate there. Uh, athletic women overall have like a three and a half times greater risk uh, for reporting stress urinary incontinence compared to non-athletes. Um, and, you know, the only data we have on actual like barbell sport type athletes has uh, up to date before this article came out was in CrossFitters. And so in this survey, 27% of women in the CrossFit group reported involuntary leakage during CrossFit workouts versus only eight and a half percent in controls. I, we did a podcast on this with, uh, Dr. Merrill, uh, that's Dr. Miles. Uh, I guess, I guess they went through residency together, something like that. I think you knew her from Florida. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and kind of what we settled on was that women who participate in competitive sports, so athletes, it tends to be like an identifying activity. It sort of makes this condition that people were predisposed to, like uh, it declares itself. So it to unmasks speak. it. Yes. Yeah. It's not really uh, causative, so to speak. Like, oh, if you're active, you're going to get SUI. It's like, well, if you were going to get it, now you're no, now you know. But if you were never really active, you never did any jumping, never any heavy lifting, high exertion or whatever, you may go your whole life without knowing about this. But then if you don't, if you aren't really active, that leads to risks of other things. Okay. So let's get into this particular study. This was a 19 question survey that was shared on social media to females involved in powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman. They actually excluded CrossFit. They were like, no mixed modal fitness here, please just uh, barbell sports. And all the women had to be greater than 18 years of age. They only released the survey for four days but they got over 400 athletes. Uh, That's to impressive. <laughs> I agree. Kind of makes me want us to do a survey. Just be like, hey, well, how many responses will we get? Yeah. Uh, so in any case, the two biggest barbell sports that were represented was power, were powerlifting and strongman, uh, making up uh, just over 40% for, uh, for each. Uh, about one third of the respondents had one to three years of training experience. Another third had three to five years of training experience and 20% had five to 10 years. The remainder was like they were pretty new or they had been doing it for more than 10 years. And the average age was 36. What I wish they would have put here was like BMI, just, you know, to see if there was some sort of relationship there. Uh, but that they, they did collect height and weight data, but they just averaged it. I didn't see like uh, individual respondent sort of I data. See. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in any case, what did they find? They found that over 40%, 43.5% experienced stress urinary incontinence with daily tasks. So people were getting involuntary leakage, doing stuff around the house in the occupational setting, et cetera, not with exercise. Okay. Uh, up close to 60% of the respondents experienced it during competition and of the respondents, 70% of them had SUI currently at some point, either during exercise or during daily tasks, but 70% is substantially higher than the lifetime risk of developing this. If you're not an active athlete, so it appears to be overrepresented. Um, perhaps the most interesting stat I thought was that 61% did not have SUI before starting their sport. Meaning that, again, the participation in these activities seem to unmask this condition. Uh, promisingly, 67.9% of respondents thought it was a normal part of their sport, meaning that they weren't particularly 
perturbed by having this. They didn't think, oh my gosh, I'm broken or whatever. Distress, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so those who had it in sport thought it was more normal than those who who didn't. Uh, Although there was a little like differentiation there that they thought it was normal if they had it during lifting, but not during their activities of daily life. So I assume if they were around the house and they had it, they're like, yo, this is not what, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. Uh, as far as uh, risk factors they identified here, yes, women with a history of vaginal birth were more likely to experience stress urinary incontinence before sport uh, and during sport in all situations by about a factor of two. Uh, perhaps most concerning of this report was that only 17% of the respondents talked to their doctor about it and uh, less than 10% actually sought treatment, uh, which is mostly pelvic floor PT. Comparatively, half, nearly half reported talking to someone other than their doctor about this and a third sought advice from the internet. And as you and I have (laughs) rehashed hundreds, if not now, thousands of times, taking advice off the internet, (laughs) (laughs) probably not the move. Probably not the move. So I'd be very curious, you know, if they, you know, sought out some of these people who respond said, hey, I sought advice from the Internet. I'd like to see like interview related responses like, yeah, what did they tell you to do or what did you do in response to that uh, advice or information? How did you how did you evaluate the sources of advice and what was your level of what was your level of confidence in them and things like that? Exactly. Yep. So the take home here for me is that, yep, it does appear that stress urinary incontinence is more prevalent in active women. The normalization uh, is encouraging, but we should probably get more appropriate use of the medical system here. If only 17% are talking to their doctor, that is not good. A quality improvement project here related to like lifting and like female health would be like, hey, if you're having SUI, which we know is increased in this population, talk to your doctor about it because there are things you can do. First, you need an evaluation just to see like, is anything else going on or contributing to SUI other than your activity? There are, you know, number of uh, contributing factors that can uh, be sussed out on evaluation. If it's, and I don't want to like minimize this and just call it run of the mill SUI, but let's say there are no other contributory conditions or risk factors or whatever, pelvic floor PT can be very useful, but you need to go to the doctor first to get the referral to the pelvic floor PT specialist. Uh, Additionally, with your coach, and I wish that they would have like also sourced coaching uh, sort of responses on the survey. Like, hey, does your coach think it's normal? What do they tell you? Uh, there are training interventions here that can be useful here. I've got had a number of clients that have dealt with this particular issue. And if they're not, if it's uh, if the lines of communication are not open, oh boy, they, they like you're asking for a deadlift video, for example, and they're like, Mm-mm, can't, <laughs> can't send it to you. You know, they're almost embarrassed in a way, right? Or you get a an email that looks kind of panicked or something and people are like, I'm broken. And it's like, we need to have these lines of communication open um, so that it's normalized in a way. So we're like, look, you're, you know, this can happen. And if it does, like, we'll talk about it like normal adults and, and go from there. Uh, but as far as training interventions that can be useful, load management. In general, people who get SUI during uh, athletic endeavors, it's mostly at the higher intensities, things that are very, very challenging. And so if this is distressing to the individual or it's something they want to work on, it may call for a brief period of lighter weights so that they can um, you know, in, uh, incorporate some of the pelvic floor PT uh, management advice that they, they, they've ideally received uh, and not sort of outkick their coverage with respect to weight. In some folks... You know, it's there's always going to be a weight 
where this occurs or a percentage. And ideally that happens at like maximum weight. So it's relatively rare and, you know, it's just part of the sport that you're, you're participating in belt use can contribute because that does increase intra-abdominal pressure. And we think that's sort of one of the underlying mechanisms here, uh, emptying the bladder prior to lifting. Uh, and then also, again, if the f- more we talk about this, I think, describe it, characterize it, et cetera, the more sort of, I don't know, social support we can generate, you know, rather than it being, I don't know if you remember this, this was on Instagram a few years ago. There was a man who like posted a picture of like a, uh, a, a small puddle on the platform. And he's like, this is disgusting. Like if you're going to pee on the platform, just put a tampon in. And it's like, so anatomically, yeah, that's yeah. not, not going to work. <laughs> um, but and I don't think that comes from a, a place of like, I'm just trying to be a dick. It's just a, a place of ignorance. And it's like, yeah, we should probably just talk about this and, and again, have more information out there on this stuff. I mean, may also be a dick too. Why not both? Yeah, it could be. But- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two things can be true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that the most, probably one of the more important takeaways here is that concept that you laid out at the beginning that, because I think that a, a, likely a common, um, you know, conclusion that people would automatically draw is that, again, lifting causes this, um, rather than that idea of these types of activities might unmask or reveal a predisposition to this kind of thing. If you can like really internalize that, then I think it will likely change the way you think about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so we talked about this uh, on podcast episode 146 that's linked in the description below. Uh, uh, Dr. Merrill is a pelvic floor PT specialist. And so we go through, uh, again, the pathophysiology, the incidents, etc. although this data was not available. So that would have been useful to have prior to recording that podcast. Uh, but in any case, if you're looking for more information on that, uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend checking that out. Okay. Last paper we're going to review here on episode 229 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is the June 2023 research review with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. We're going to talk about the efficacy and safety of oral semaglutide once daily in subjects with overweight or obesity, appropriately named Oasis One. And what a great- Sounds lovely. What a great (laughs) acronym. Just excellent. So this is a phase three clinical trial that was completed in just over 1,400 people that were followed for about a year and a half, 68 weeks. Uh, and so what they did, and we've talked about this on our obesity meds, uh, anti-obesity medications uh, podcast before, we talked about these injectable GLP-1 agonists and GIP, GIP agonists. Uh, but let's just review for the listeners at home, what is semaglutide and how does it work? Yeah, so these this class of medications like semaglutide or liraglutide or exenatide, there's a whole bunch of them. They are have been historically mostly injectable um, peptides that kind of mimic the action of one of the normal um, kind of uh, hormones that our body produces for a variety of purposes. One of the more potent impacts of injecting these kind of uh, medications, especially at levels that are much higher than our body would normally produce is a pretty potent effect on uh, what we call satiety, feelings of fullness. And so that can result in a a straightforward, you know, decrease in appetite and food seeking behavior and and, and eating and lead to a a very reliable and sustained uh, reduction in body weight, particularly over time as these medications are used. There are multiple other effects and physiologic pathways that GLP-1 is involved in, but I think that as it relates to the weight loss outcomes we see, that's probably the most relevant here is relating to satiety and, and kind of appetite regulation. 
in the context of our current food environment. Yep. Yeah. So the, the two injectable types of semaglutide, uh, just for view for the listeners, just what are they and like the general dosing sort of schedule here? Yeah. So um, Ozempic is uh, the one that maybe people might have heard a bit more about. And that's probably because it was uh, came out first, was approved first for uh, the treatment of, of type 2 diabetes. And so that tends to follow a little bit of a lower dosing kind of uh, regimen, typically start out at about 0.25 milligrams injected subcutaneously once a week. And then that gets adjusted up once every four weeks or so um, up to a maximum dose. And so the, the version of this that was kind of approved more specifically for weight loss purposes, even in patients who do not have diabetes, was branded as Wegovy. And so the the brand name differences are completely not relevant. Um, you know, medically speaking, it's the same substance, it's the same medication. It's just given under two different brand names and with slightly differing dosages um, that can be pushed a bit higher for for the latter. And so the effects of this as it relates to weight loss, as long as the medication is sustained at the kind of the maximum tolerated dose, um, you know, we're seeing anywhere from 15, 18, maybe upwards of 20% weight loss um, that people can can achieve over time. I feel like most of what I've seen has been in like that 15 to 18% range with a lot of folks that I've worked with who are, who are on these medications. And just to be clear that that is a leaps and bounds, you know, improvement in efficacy of, um, weight loss, you know, medication treatment over the prior generation of these things that had been used previously. So for example, Contrave, the oral version of bupropion and naltrexone, like you're lucky if you get, I don't know, five, 8%, you know, 8% is probably the number that I think that I think of in my, uh, have in mind. Some of the other ones are even less potent. Um, Phentermine topiramate is another oral one that was a little bit better and it can still be used mainly, you know, is still used often mainly because it's still quite inexpensive, but still these injectable ones have been much more potent. Now, Orals have an appeal because not everybody likes to inject themselves, even though it's, you know, a very tiny needle. You can barely even see it if you see it at all. And it's once a week and it's out of the way. But some people understandably are not going to want to do that. And additionally, it has to come in that, you know, proprietary injection, you know, delivery system. And so if there is a way to produce an oral um, version, meaning a pill that is taken by mouth at whatever dosing frequency, there are some potential benefits to that. Avoiding the use of an injection, maybe, you know, by the time it goes generic and becomes super inexpensive, then, you know, we, if we can achieve similar efficacy with that, that that would be kind of a, a game changer. And so semaglutide has been available in oral formulation, um, as you mentioned, called ribelsis, um, that's been more, more typically used for the treatment of diabetes. Uh, you usually start people around three milligrams, then bump it up to seven. And then the max dose is 14 milligrams uh, a day. And my experience with that, um, has been pretty modest. It has generated some, some weight loss, some appetite suppression that the person definitely noticed, but it was not on the order of what we see with the injectable ones. And so that's kind of where, um, that, uh, presumably the idea for this study came about is, well, if it is in fact safe to go higher than just 14 milligrams uh, with this medication, if there's not, you know, major safety concerns with going higher than that, well, let's see what we can generate in terms of efficacy if we kind of crank the dose up a bit higher. So I was intrigued to see this get done all the way up at 50 milligrams, like over three times higher than the current uh, max dose. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a 68 week efficacy and safety trial. It's a fancy way of saying uh, it's a phase three clinical trial. Um, and they were comparing once daily oral semaglutide at 50 milligrams for weight management 
compared to placebo. And uh, the ultimate sample size they ended up using was 667 adults with obesity or, or overweight with one or more medical uh, comorbidities or conditions that were effectively related to carrying excess body fat. And again, as Austin said, rebelsis is oral semaglutide, and they used a much higher dose than what's currently available. So both treatment arms, and this is important, were used in conjunction with lifestyle intervention. The people, whether they're getting placebo or this 50 milligrams of ribelsis or oral semaglutide took one tablet every morning. And then the lifestyle intervention was they got counseled directly on healthy food choices, how to be more physically active and what they needed to do to lose weight. They had 14 clinic visits and seven phone calls with the study doctor during the study duration. So it's not like they, Hey, take these medications or take a placebo and then just like, you know, go home and good luck. So they were combining this with lifestyle interventions. And that's been my experience when talking to people who not only have been prescribed these anti-obesity medications in general, but also uh, I would call say the proponents of using these medications. Nobody's saying, Hey, let's just give people meds and not use lifestyle stuff. Like let's, let's do both. And that, that's just been my experience. So I think when people hear medication, they're like, okay, well, we're out lifestyle stuff. We're out the door on that. We're just not, we're not going to use it. And that does not seem to be in keeping with what actually happens in the clinic. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's consistently observed, what you'll hear folks who use these like myself or talking to Dr. Nadolsky, who I talk to all the time about this stuff and, 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 you know, he's blowing up in this scene uh, himself is that these treatments help people do the lifestyle interventions and modifications that they already are wanting and know that they can do. It makes it, it facilitates those things because there's not any way, you know, to healthfully lose body fat in the context of obesity, particularly if there are medical complications present um, without doing some of those things. It's just that those are quite difficult to do and sustain in our modern environment. And these meds make it quite a lot more achievable and sustainable. It basically shifts the curve. So if you think about like a bell curve and what fraction of the bell curve, what proportion of the population is able to execute and sustain these things long-term, admittedly and historically, it has been a relatively small fraction of people who can pull off substantial weight loss and, 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 and sustain it long-term. With the use of these medicines, we can shift that whole bell curve rightward pretty significantly such that a much larger fraction of people are able to achieve it. Is it 100%? Nope. But that's also where we have other strategies. We can combine strategies. We can do other things to keep shifting things. Basically, and the ultimate aim is not for a particular body size or body weight or anything like that. It's a particular health status, right? And so that's ultimately the, the aim of these things. Yep. Yeah, it makes people lifestyle harder or they're able to lifestyle harder, uh, you know, without, without untoward or uh, one of the papers we like to cite often, heroic efforts to sort of maintain the appropriate energy intake necessary to either sustain weight loss that's already happened or to continue weight loss to get to that sort of healthy status where there's reduced risk factors from obesity-related conditions, reduced sort of burden of disease from existing conditions, and so on. Okay. In any case, what did this phase three clinical trial find? The primary outcome was weight loss at week 68, so about a year and a half later, with this oral semaglutide 50 milligrams versus placebo. The mean baseline body weight of the 667 adults included in the sample uh, was 105 kilos. So just quick back of the uh, envelope math, 231 pounds was the initial body weight. The average weight loss was 17.4% after 68 weeks compared to 1.8% body weight loss with the placebo. Uh, so they use a term as like placebo adjusted, uh, you know, 
uh, difference. And so we're looking at like a 15 and a half ish or 15% difference, which is uh, huge. And to put that into context, clinically significant weight loss, when you read data on this, it's, you know, usually somewhere between that five to 10% of initial body weight, not only getting that off, but sustaining it for like a year, three years, five years, et cetera, losing 17.4%. Not only are you definitely in the clinically significant weight loss, that's a lot. Yeah. That is a lot uh, to, to get off, uh, particularly for a single intervention. Uh, in addition, almost 90% of those people who received this oral semaglutide at 50 milligrams reached a weight loss of 5% or more after a year and a half compared to only 24% of those with the placebo. So not only was the weight loss greater on average, but more people achieved the weight loss uh, compared to placebo. That's basically what I was describing with the fraction of people of the bell curve of the population who can achieve that weight loss, you know, on placebo was 24% say, which is probably higher than we see in a lot of other data sets. Totally. But then as soon as with these meds, it shifted to 90% of them. And so it's like, Hmm, that seems substantial. <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time making a strong argument against these on a, uh, whatever moral basis or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and by comparison, the best data we have on like lifestyle intervention alone on weight loss is a meta-analysis of 29 long-term weight loss studies. These are all a year, uh, or longer, uh, more than half of the weight that was lost in these individuals was regained within two years. And by five years, more than 80% of the lost weight was regained. And so what that looks like at five years after completing the structured weight loss programs, the average individual only maintained a weight loss of about three kilograms or 3% of their initial body weight, which is not clinically significant. It doesn't reach that sort of at least the lower threshold of 5%. And so it's like, wow, if that's the you know average sort of result from lifestyle alone, that uh, does not look particularly promising. And I don't want to discourage people. They're like, well, so I just shouldn't try. It's like, look, no, obviously some people are able to lose weight and keep it off. Those folks, the best data set we have on that is the National Weight Loss Control Registry. And those folks have lost at least, uh, I think it's either 30 kilograms or I think it's it's either 30% or 20% of their initial body weight and have kept it off for years. So some people obviously can do this, but by and large, people don't don't really do well with just lifestyle interventions alone. And that just is speaking in my, in my opinion, to the food environment, the general lack of uh, participation in sufficient amounts of physical activity, and just how hard this is to do these lifestyle changes in our current environment. It's just, it's just hard, especially to, you know, you try to tell a, a single mother of three, Hey, not only do you need to work out more, but you need to control your diet, you know, this, this much. And it's like, Okay. Yeah. But how though? Yeah. You need to do all your food prep and plan all your meals for the week and all, as well as your children and, and yeah, just, of <laughs> yeah, just count harder, yeah. you know, just, yeah. So in any case, uh, to me overall, this looks pretty promising for like a more available sort of agent. Again, I do agree that the oral sort of, uh, version of this would be more palatable, uh, even though the injection is with a very tiny needle and, you know, it's once a week and whatever. And then if you maybe correlated that to like, well, if people have to take this thing every day and mm -hmm. people are going to miss the, the dosing yep. on something. Okay. But I still think in general, people would rather take a pill than do the injection. You agree with that? I mean, until they actually go through it. I feel like if I asked a lot of patients on the back end, <laughs> you know, once they've actually gone through it and they're like, oh, that wasn't a big deal. And I, and doing it once a week is, is great. But I understand that that's not going to be for everybody. And so having more options, um, and then particularly as, as what I would expect in the future, once all of these things down the line become, you know, generic and things like that, you're gonna have a hard time having a generic manufacturer 
um, include, you know, using a, these kind of like proprietary injection systems and things like mm-hmm. that. That's not really something that's super conducive to a lot of generic stuff, whereas pills is way easier than just Mark Cuban does it through his pharmacy and it'll be yeah, yeah. five bucks or something for this, like a lot of other things. Yeah, I'm curious to think. So liraglutide will, is supposed to go generic next summer, June of 2024, which is an injection, you know, once a week, whatever. Or is it every day? I forget. It's daily. Daily. Yeah, that's the daily one. Um, I, I suspect some point before then, they'll come up with either a new either injection system or formulation or indication or something and like try to re-up the proprietary. <laughs> it might I happen. Mean, that's, that yeah, that's something that a lot of companies do with more advanced medications. If it does go fully generic, then the question would be, yeah, which generic manufacturer is going to pick this up or how are they going to compete and are they going to you know start to design their own systems and things like that? But we'll see. Yeah. What I'm more curious to see is the pricing on this invariably when it does come up. So Rebelsis itself per tab at all doses, whether it's three, seven, 14 is about 37 bucks a tab. And so it's like, you're telling me that the three milligram uh, version is the same price as the 14 milligram. I mean, from a stoichiometry standpoint, chemistry (laughs) standpoint, that doesn't make any sense. sense, Right. (laughs) So maybe would it be 37 bucks for 50 milligram tab? If Uh, so, I hope it goes down from there. That's still a lot for a pill. Yeah, it's still, yeah, you've got to take it every day. It's still a thousand dollars a month or a little bit more. So not great. But when you compare it to like Wegovi, it's $400 a dose. And you got to take it once a week. So that's, it's even higher. And I mean, in both cases, paying out of pocket is not really a long-term solution for the majority of people, no matter how affluent you are, but still the fact that it's cheaper is promising. (laughs) So we'll, we'll see. I will be very curious if, if this new drug, it's going to come with some dumb name. I can just, I just know it, some dumb name. (laughs) If it comes out and it's like a hundred something dollars a tablet, I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to be, I'll be like, what guys, (laughs) <laughs> you already showed that the amount of active drug in the pill does not change your pricing. Why, yeah, right. why did you do it for this? Just because yeah. you could? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's how they work, man. Well, Novo Nordisk is not going to give us a, a bonus, I guess. <laughs> Big Pharma is going to cut us off finally. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Well, hey, that's a wrap on episode 229 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. It's our June 2023 research review. Special thanks to Dr. Baraki for joining me uh, and, with, and, and blessing with his time. Make sure to check out our new stuff. Again, the Bodybuilding 2 template is now available. We restocked supplements. PeriRx, newly reformulated WayRx Vanilla is in stock. We restocked our street teas. Uh, and again, they're probably going to sell out within a few days. I just can't keep them in stock. So if you're on the fence, go over, get that. Uh, new article on the website about weight, uh, the science of weightlifting belts. And again, the non-sugar sweeteners, artificial sweetener newsletter piece. That's linked in the description below. If if you like that sort of information, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We've got live in-person seminars coming up. That's linked in the description below. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.